Greetings, electric utility enthusiasts, and welcome to the Public Power Underground. My name is Nicole, and I'm the guest star for today's episode. We have a lot to discuss today, but first I wanted to set the stage for one of the many things that inspires me to work on electricity system decarbonization. In addition to being an electric utility enthusiast, I'm a snow enthusiast. A snow-covered mountain is my happy place. I grew up skiing Mount Hood and building snow forts at our little mountain cabin in the Mount Hood National Forest. Snow makes me happy, but more importantly, a healthy snowpack is vital to our region's ecosystem, and we rely on it to generate clean electricity. Over the years, I've watched the effects of climate change impact the snowpack on Mount Hood. As the months available for snow sports lessen, the demand continues to increase. The balance between increased demand and decreased resource runs deep through our entire economy. More equipment to manufacture, more electric devices to charge, more cars to carry people to the mountain, and hardly a thought about the energy need to sustain these activities. But this, just is, this isn't just about snow sports. This is about our ecosystem and our economy. The electricity grid is the backbone of our entire economy. Our goals of economy-wide decarbonization must start here. In the Northwest, clean hydroelectric power provides the critical blood supply to support the grid. However, as the snowpack dwindles, we run the risk of asking too much. We need to think critically about how we can supplement and expand our grid with new clean energy generation. We have the responsibility to make certain the grid is resilient and sustainable to support our continued employment enjoyment of clean electric hydro generation and sustainable ecosystems. I have a saying that when I am above the tree line, uh, enjoying the bright white of a snow-covered mountain, not a care in the world can touch me. I always want the mountains to have the comfort of a blanket of fresh snow to charge me and other snow enthusiasts and to charge our electricity grid. This is my personal inspiration for why I do the work. I have the great privilege of working with an incredibly diverse, professional, hardworking membership, staff, and board. And I truly hope that my enthusiasm for this important work comes across in our conversation today. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be here today. Thank you. We started in hard times to bring us all in. Into the laughter through thick and through thin For public power enthusiasts without and within Roll on enthusiasts, roll on Roll on enthusiasts, roll on Roll on enthusiasts, roll on We're I'm Paul Dockery I'm Almaz Nagesh And I'm Karen Heim Karen works for the Public Power Council, is a valued contributor to the underground, and is this week's rotating cast member. Joining Almaz, Karen, and I as this week's celebrity guest star is Nicole Hughes. Nicole is the executive director of Renewable Northwest, a renewable energy advocacy organization with a granular focus on policy and regulatory proceedings in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Montana. Nicole, welcome to Public Power Underground. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. Yeah, I, I consider you a friend of the underground, and I'm Yay. pretty sure you're an honorary member of the power department, right? Sure am. <laughs> yes. All it takes, all it takes to be an honorary member of the power department is to buy some merch uh, with that yeah. says honorary member of the power department. It's, uh, it's a little bit. Actually, the entire uh, Northwest, uh, Renewable Northwest staff are honorary members. Well, how do you like that? That. (laughs) Love everything about that. Uh, Almaz, Karen, are we ready for this week? Anything exciting that you're ready to talk about or are you just excited to be here? 
we're I'm just excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to be back. It's my first one back in a while. So it's it's uh you've been back since the newest baby. Like I feel like we've already gone through that, right? Uh yeah, I mean I, this so I've been he's six months, so I've been back for three months. I just haven't been back on an episode. So that's what I meant. On, yeah. on the underground. You have not been back. No, since I haven't been back. This is my first one since since Max. So yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, the last I, time I felt... uh, last time I was here, I was like eight and a half months pregnant. So things are different now. There's a baby things sleeping are... in the other room now. <laughs> yes, yeah, want to be careful. Want to be careful. Okay. Well, I the headphones. Think, yeah, I'm ready to get into it. If y'all ready to get into it, I'm excited to have Karen back as always. On today's episode of Public Power Underground, we're approaching some electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a renewable energy advocate's perspective. We'll talk about Uncle Bill and Aunt Ira, procedural justice and streamlining transmission siting, and a decent proposal for market evolution. Then we're short-circuiting our way through the rest of the topics we didn't get to in in a segment we're calling Short to Ground. Before we get started, a quick word from our presenting sponsor. Almaz, did you know nuclear energy is America's largest source of climate-friendly power? Is that a thing you knew? I did not know that. I would have said hydro. Um, Okay. Well, nuclear is probably in more parts of the country probably than hydro. Hydro is very river-specific, I think. Yeah, I'm I'm very focused on the Northwest. In America, you're probably right. Yes, nuclear. Sounds right. Love that about you. Okay. In fact, nuclear energy provides about 50% of the country's carbon-free electricity. And Energy Northwest, our friends at Energy Northwest, is a premier provider of carbon-free electricity in the Pacific Northwest. Energy Northwest's mission is to provide safe, reliable, cost-effective, responsible power generation and innovative energy and business solutions to its public power members and regional customers. Energy Northwest is proudly advancing the Northwest clean energy future. To learn more, do you know want to do you want to know how to learn more, Amaz? Yeah, give me the info. I need to know more. Okay. Okay, let's let's learn more. To learn more about Energy Northwest, visit their website at energy-northwest.com. That's energy-northwest.com. Our first segment is Public Power Desktop, where we close out some browser tabs of energy and energy-adjacent news. You got the first story, Almaz. Take it away. All right. The New York Times waded into electricity into electric utility enthusiasm last week with an article by Eric Lipton discussing the opportunities awaiting the industry after the passing of massive federal legislation in support of the energy transition through the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, which we've been informed via Energy Twitter are being referred to as Uncle Bill for the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and Aunt Ira by state regulators. The New York Times article highlights the value to big utilities like DTE, AEP, NextEra Energy, and Southern Company, but doesn't miss the fact that that whole new segments of the economy are eligible for incentives, including battery makers, broadband providers, highway builders, mining companies, automakers, and semiconductor manufacturers. The coverage in the article doesn't highlight the access to PTCs and ITCs by public power companies, instead focusing on the profit motive for IOUs in the capital deployment to come. The article quotes Shariar Pereza, who has spent two decades studying the utility industry for Wall Street firms, saying, quote, let's be honest, these guys can say all they want about the environment and how we are all aligned, 
but you strip back the layers of the onion. And this is also a major long-term growth opportunities for these utilities, end quote. So this is actually something that I go back and forth on, right? Um, he's clearly critical of the motive. So I'm, I, my question to you, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, uh, Nicole. Like if, if an organization is doing the right thing, if an entity is doing the right thing, ultimately, does it matter what their intentions are? Like, what do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I guess the answer to me in this is that this is how capitalism works, right? If we want industry to change their behavior, we have to dangle the carrot in the direction we want them to go. And the carrot in this case is, is the tax credits and the direction is towards clean energy. So it's going to do its job. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious. I, so I, I said I go back and forth. And, and the reason I, I, so I totally agree with what you just said. Um, the thing that worries me is when, like, does does it, it seems like um, when, mo when the motives or the intentions are not, um, and I'll put in quotes, right, like, but not aligned <laughs> with what the underlying uh, goal is. Uh, it's very easy that when those dollars are gone or when those incentives are no longer there, that we might, um, yeah, we might find ourselves in a different situation. So I wonder if there's just a, a, a risk. That, that's what makes me go back and forth. Like, um, could could we very easily slide back um, since simply because the, the right motivation isn't there? But uh, I totally agree. At the end of the day, if we're moving in the right direction, you can't really complain about that, right? Yeah. One of the one of the areas that I really found interesting about like the federal legislation here is the intention around coalition building. So um, as you talk about motives here, um, but it, it seems like they, these bills were structured in ways to get to garner coalitions to keep it sustainable. So building a manufacturing base, building you know employment opportunities so those employees would support the legislation going forward. Any thoughts on that, Nicole, and and how the Northwest can can it get value out of this bill? Yeah. Yeah. Paul, I think you picked up on a, an important theme and that's what, what people don't think a lot about are the indirect benefits of, of this coalition that's all heading in the same direction. So, um, you know, there will be a lot of projects built, a lot of infrastructure invested in, but there's also a lot of indirect economic benefits in the local communities, which are going to see this, these new jobs. Um, you know, we just before the passing of these bills, we published a couple of fact sheets that talk about the economic benefits of new renewable generation in Oregon. And there's counties in Oregon where 80% of their entire county budget comes from uh, revenue from renewable energy projects. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, these are small counties that didn't have that revenue ahead of before. You know, they were some of the some of the poorest counties in the state, and now they're up there in competition with some of the richest counties in the state because of this investment. So I think when you put together the manufacturing and the, you know, the demand side, there's lots of demand side opportunity. There's um, new opportunities for people to take advantage or organizations to take advantage of the tax credits that weren't there before. And then consider all the indirect benefits. There's a lot of economic benefit that, that's going to come out of this. Um, Specifically for the Northwest, the thing that I think I'm most excited about is the opportunity for municipalities and tribes to take advantage of the tax credits where they couldn't before. And I've been spending a lot of time thinking about how to make that happen. 
How do you make it happen? Karen, I have a bunch <laughs> of questions on this, but Karen, do you have any, 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 any questions you wanted to follow up on? No, I do not. You actually you took mine or took a version of mine and Nicole got it. So no, I don't have any on this one. So, so how, how, how are we getting there? Like what's, you've been Googling it or you've been noodling over it. <laughs> Googling yeah. it. Yeah. Does Google have the answer? Yeah. 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 I don't know. I mean, like we should ask Google. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, one thing I think if we just step back and like neither IIJA or IRA were really written with us in mind out here in the Northwest. We have a very unique system, right? So uh, lots of opportunity to invest in transmission, but 75% of our transmission here is owned by PPA. And a lot of the investment opportunities weren't written in a way that are like really obvious for a federal PMA to take advantage of. And with IRA... Um, you know, we can we can build new clean energy generation, but until we have the transmission to bring it to load, we're still kind of stuck with this chicken and egg thing. But on on the on the piece of the municipal utilities and tribes, um, you know, I, I'm sort of envisioning it's kind of what I was trying to get in, in my opener here is that you know, we we can't always demand the same amount of flexibility, the hydro system that we have. And going forward, we're probably gonna have greater challenges with lower water years. And so let's think really creatively about how to combine resources onto the federal and public power system that can help balance that out, can help take some of the pressure off the hydro system. So like, what if we were able to, you know, wave our magic wand and, and every uh, rural electric co-op had a five megawatt solar and storage system on its, uh, on there. And they could net load against the hydro system and preserve the hydro during those really peak hot summer days for when it's needed most, when the sun isn't shining. I mean, I, I have the, the the idea, but I just don't know how to make it happen at this point. Yeah. So you mentioned that you didn't think that or that these legislations weren't designed with us in mind. It, there, there is. We are one of the parts of the country with the highest penetration of public power. I think. Uh, maybe outside of the TVA service territory, and maybe even in light of NPPD and TVA, I think we probably just have more loads served by public power than probably anywhere else in the country. So it does seem like the idea that municipals and tribes and public utilities can take advantage of the PTCs and ITCs opens up some opportunity there. What insights do you have about the legislation and drafting? And is there any lesson learned for next time about how to get it better, like, better influence or yeah i mean i i i don't know if it's because we're just so far from dc or whether we just i mean organizations like renewable northwest we don't have we do now (laughs) but we don't have federal lobbyists or federal consultants that track these things on a regular basis but i think we need to have a stronger presence in dc i think we really need to let people know we're here and we're unique and we have special needs and and, you know, what works in MISO and PJM isn't going to work here. No, and I uh, just, I like what uh, Nicole was saying about how we, we're our own special little entity out here. I mean, you know, group of entities, but it's, uh, it's, it's rough to figure out what works, what, what, what works for one does not work for all. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, you mentioned the, um, the carrot technique that the Inflation Reduction Act takes and even the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act or Uncle Bill, the bipartisan infrastructure law, which I, I do like Uncle Bill and Ann Ira's names. Um, do you have any thoughts about the, the the sticks that could be necessary or will be necessary? And, uh, and, and 
how, because in the article about the New York Times, it does talk about how uh, some special interests were able to get the sticks out of the bill. Any thoughts on, you know, what's necessary to kind of be successful uh, in getting this legislation to mean something for utilities in the Northwest? Yeah, um, I mean, I've thought a little bit about the sticks. I mean, I think it's a little bit more about, um, you know, for us out here in the Northwest, maybe it's setting boundaries and expectations for how those dollars should be spent. Um, we don't want to just spend money willy-nilly on new generation unless it's really thought out as to what problems it's going to be solving. And so, you know, we we have clean energy standards in Oregon and Washington right now. So let's just be really mindful about how to do that in a way that maintains resource adequacy and other things that are important to our electricity grid. Um, I do think we probably need to look closely at the regulatory sector and see if there's any ways that we can incentivize utilities to be making the right choices on the demand side that haven't been there before. Um, I see you raise your eyebrows. So, I mean, we honestly think that like that's a really important piece of the puzzle is to make sure there's a robust demand side. Um, You know, I was, I'm a, we have a peak rebates program here at Portland General Electric. It's great. Like, you you know, during peak time events, you don't use electricity and, and you get a rebate. I'm a completely obsessive peak rebate programmer. (laughs) And when we're having a peak time event here, there is no lights on in the Hughes household. The most of money I've ever saved is like a dollar forty-seven. <laughs> yeah, that's that's yeah. what I was gonna say. It's like turn the AC off when it's really hot, and then they're like, "You're, you know, you're sweltering and very uncomfortable." And they're like, "Here's a dollar fifty back. Was that worth it?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe it was down the line for the grid, but for me, who was yeah. very warm. <laughs> Isn't this no. what you want to PhD on, Amaz? Oh, yeah, I was a- going to say, this is this is a very interesting thing. This, this is the problem right here. The, yeah. the, so I've, um, well, what I've always said, um, and it's, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but energy is too cheap, right? So though it's, well, and, and, that, and it doesn't mean that energy, we, we don't pay enough, we don't pay for electricity the, or a price for electricity that's comparable to the value that we get from it. So that's what I mean when I say energy is too yep. cheap. So it's 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 worse. It hurts us more to not have it than it does to actually pay for it. Um, and yeah, so that's that's always been a problem for me when I was designing these. Is like there's really nothing that we can offer that would make it worth it to to someone. You, you have to have um, a non financial uh, motivator. Um, money isn't going to do it. $1.50. Yeah. I've seen like the analysis around the value of lost load and it's always the value of lost load is like, you know, so many multiples of what we charge for electricity. It's like, Oh, which might maybe participation by the demand side in our bidding, wholesale electric bidding would be a scheme where we can uh, start working on that. What else? So different is like the difference between like for a residential customer. Yeah. For your, for your commercial customers that can shut down processes and things like that. That's a different story. Yeah. That's electricity too cheap is, is really in terms of like the average person not wanting to swelter in the sun, but sorry, Nicole. No, that's right. I mean, it is definitely a different dynamic, the, the sort of commercial side versus the residential side. I mean, I don't think it's reasonable for us to expect that 
everybody, unless we had like the, what did they, they had an Amber Alert system in California where they sent out texts to everyone's like, please don't use power during this time frame. save our grid from falling apart. I don't know that I, I see something like that being a long-term fix to this problem. And I think if we sent the right signals to the, to the customers and maybe the sticks, maybe there should be some sticks there too. Like, you know, if you want to, if you want to run your washer and dryer on a 110 degree day with your air conditioning on, that's going to cost you a little bit more. That might hurt. <laughs> I sometimes wonder if the the solution isn't more around, uh, like uh, we've talked about it before, like the Frank Wolak methodology, where it's the, there's more risk placed on the suppliers of the electricity or, or the, we've talked about the insurance concept that uh, Farhad, whose last name I can't uh, remember, um, has around making sure that you the suppliers have the right incentives and the right structures um, to make sure that those re- adequacy metrics are are, are met. Yeah. Because I think Almaz, to your point, like you aren't going to be able to do this based on like paying demand um, to reduce. Uh, so making sure the financial incentives are on the generators and the suppliers, I think, and making sure those structures are right probably makes the most sense to me. Mm-hmm. You want to say something, Almaz? Uh, no, so I, I'm, st- I'm. This is going back to your comment about regulatory structures and 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 the sticks. So we've we've got all of this, and your to your question, um, Paul, about you know, do, do do we need to have some sticks with all of this money? Um, do you think it's too late? Like I, I feel like it. It's not the, an energy transition is a lot more than just changing the technology, um, like the systems that we have that support the current. Um, um, generation mix also has to change. So you might have heard, like, for example, the, the the issues that they're having in in Europe over marginal pricing and what happened. And anyway, what happens when we have all renewables and marginal costs mean nothing anymore, right? So there, there are fundamental systems that have to shift in addition to our technologies. And I'm wondering, um, do those happen at the same time? Do you think, like, a lot of these, this money might be lost because we're incentivizing current system that's built, uh, well, you know, to incentivize in this current system that might not be relevant moving forward. Um, is it too late to 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 fix that, or what do you think? No, about- I I think, and this is I when I talk to funders about like what happens next after we've passed these clean energy standards, I, I say this is a huge gaping hole. In, in the work that we do is what's going to happen on the demand side to be able to match this change in generation. And, you know, it's like basically a fundamental shift of generating to meet load. Now the load needs to be meeting generation and the two need to be working together synchronously so that we're not having interrupted, you know, uh, delivery of power. And if that means that, you know, like you said, there's some incentives for the suppliers to be, working their systems to provide the resource adequacy when it's needed or, you know, holding back, then there needs to be the right incentives and market signals in place to do that. And I think, so I think I would love to see, I know Washington state has a performance-based rate making case open right now, and that'll be kind of the first opportunity to have those conversations about how we can structure a regulatory system to send the right signals. Um, I don't think it's just going to be, here's the X, Y, and Z things that you, you can get, you can get rate recovery for. I think it's going to be a little bit more, more than that. And we need to bring in some really smart people to, to put, pull that plan together. 
I love talking about PBR. It's something not a not a topic that I uh, that I've delved into enough to know. But PBR, both a great acronym and uh, performance based rates, are cool mechanisms with uh, yeah, and the beard learning to be done. And, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And the professional <laughs> bull riders. Oh, what oh, what is it yeah. for? PBR. Yeah. Uh, yeah, rodeo. that's it. Professional bull riding rodeo. Yeah, I think that's right. It, yeah. Okay. And with that segment, why don't we why don't we go to the next one? Uh, I think Karen, you got the next one. I do. Uh, the House of Representatives Sustainable Energy and Environmental Coalition released a policy brief on permitting reform on November 21st, 2022. According to the press release accompanying the release, the policy focuses on two primary pillars, electric tra- transmission reform and increased community engagement in the permitting process. Princeton Net Zero's America Project model called for, in one case, a tripling of HV transmission mileage, and the Repeat Project published a report exploring the impacts if we fail to accelerate transmission expansion. The bottom line, over 80% of the potential emission reductions delivered by Ant IRA in 2030 are lost if transmission expansion is constrained to 1% a year, and roughly 25% if the growth is limited to 1.5% a year. For context, according to Michael Symbalis, Symbalis, 12th Annual Energy Report, uh, we expanded the grid about 1% per year over the last decade, while growth of electric demand was stagnant nationally, and we averaged 2% per year from the late 1970s to 2020, which includes both a period of growth from uh, until about 2005 and a period of flat loads since 2005. So, Nicole... My question for you uh, is, given the highlighted importance of transmission expansion um, for the energy transition and the complicating factors of procedural justice, cost, time, et cetera, Mm -hmm. fill in the blank, do you have a silver bullet to get us through it, figure it out? (laughs) Whoa, I wish I did. I (laughs) wish I did. I probably wouldn't be doing this job if I did. Man, I, I read that when I read the repeat report, I had a little bit of anxiety. I was like, oh, we, we got to go <laughs> is, fast on transmission. It's a good report. It is in-depth. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, Jesse Jenkins, former Renewable Northwest intern, <laughs> is a genius. So, um, Great advertisement no, I, for working at Renewable Northwest, right? Yeah, just walking around is. out there. I He's like, oh, <laughs> People who work here or intern here go on to do amazing things. So. Just, just putting out that out there. We will be looking for two new interns this summer. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. No silver bullet. I see like three important action items here. One is we have projects that upgrade projects that have been sitting in the hopper for years that are like need to just move. They need to move and and we need to invest in them right away. So let's let's tackle the low hanging fruit. Let's like get the upgrades needed on the areas where we've had renewable generation in the queue for a while first. Um, We need to get really creative on transmission planning and cost allocation. I think there's some interim models before we start talking about RTO that we might, we might need to start talking about. Um, And then, I mean, we need to rethink regional transmission planning and focus on matching the new clean energy generation to load. So this might mean, more attention on the IRP data, and then, you know, taking both like near-term approaches as well as more long-term planning, like what can we, what new transmission can we line up to start building in 2030? And then what do we need to do to get beyond that? Um, so I think, I think that's the act, those are the action items. Um, none of those are a silver bullet and they're going to be hard. And then there's the siting issue that's looming large over transmission as well. 
Go ahead, Omas. Do you I, have a question? I'm just so I'm I I keep going back to this question. I've heard it asked before. I don't think I've ever gotten quite anyway. If the federal government just took on the responsibility of building out the transmission needed, how much, how, how much of a yeah, would that be better, worse, or indifferent? That was one of the themes in the in the SEEC uh, paper that came out is that, you know, we've had such such success with the interstate pipeline system being permitted by the federal government. So why don't we just apply that methodology to transmission? And I, I do know because I've had the conversation with a handful of our federal delegates in this region here that there's a real fear about giving up citing authority to the federal government. I'm not. You know, I we need to unpack that a little bit more because really what the system is now, it's it's not working. You've got state, county, municipal, federal jurisdictions that you have to get permits through. We just need it. Who's the boss? Who's running the show? Who's going to take the lead? <laughs> and then let's figure out what all the boxes are that need to be checked so that all of those entities come to the table. But it's it's just takes too long and it's too expensive and you know, I, I was catching up on um, some of the 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 FSEC um, stuff around B2H over the weekend, and um, I counted six thousand three hundred and ninety six pages of public comment on the B2H wow. project. That's pages. That's not just comments. <laughs> some of those pages have multiple comments in them. That's a lot. So. You know, I hear a lot that like transmission projects don't take into consideration the needs of stakeholders or they they don't look at the local issues. I think they're looking too much maybe at a very narrow set of local issues and not taking like the big picture of what the goals are that we're trying to accomplish and what the issues are that we need to address. I'd like to see a rethinking of that. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I'm, I, that's something I still need to learn a lot about, but I, I keep going back to, for me, that just makes intuitive sense, um, that that's, that's something that should be handled at the federal level. Um, it's a, it's a national need. Uh, anyway. Yeah. I mean, the federal government hasn't been amazing at doing, uh, things in the past, like permitting right of ways. And I work for, Bonneville Power doing um, transmission line uh, environmental work. And, you know, it's hard to do right away work as the federal government because NEPA, NEPA is triggered, you know, just by, you know, the turn of a page. So there's that. And, and so maybe we need to look at what are some ways we can streamline processes without basically throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So one of the ideas that we were pitching when we were in DC recently was, you know, you've got a lot of existing transmission line right of ways where the maintenance being done regularly, the, the initial impact of building the line already occurred. And in some of these cases, an upgrade to the system, and maybe it's a, increasing the right of way by 10 feet or, you know, reconductoring or upgrading a substation needs to happen. Do we really need to go through a full NEPA review for that? Is there a way we can we can qualify for a, an expedited review or do a programmatic EIS for all existing right-of-ways and then just tier to an existing record of decision when we when we want to upgrade them. 
Um, that that's the kind of thing I'd like to see. And if we do get the opportunity to have some permitting reform go through before the end of the year, which is just a few weeks away, I, I'd like to see consideration for that. What's your what's your bet on permitting reform going through in the next couple of weeks by the end of the year? I mean, I can't even come up with odds because I think it's so low I wouldn't even be able to set a line. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I think it would be amazing, but we we were totally, you know, we didn't expect the IRA. It just came out of nowhere, kind of. Oh yeah, that was so, oh, man, that was <laughs> that was an emotional roller coaster in the weeks leading up to IRA. Um, yeah. So, well, I listened to the Catalyst Pod with Shale Khan. It's one of, to, quite frankly, they just knocked it out of the park recently. And they had a they had an episode about transmission and transmission technology development for things like underground HVDC and high temperature superconductors. Which, by high temperature, they mean really cold, but not uh, at at uh, at like single digit Kelvin. Um, do you, so one of the questions I think is a real one is how much of this, what we need is siting and permitting reform and how much is cost recovery and, and kind of rate methodology around cost recovery? Because I mean, you mentioned you started with the projects that we already have in the region that are already in the available and all it takes is funding and we can go do them today. They're shovel ready projects. What if you were going to break down the barrier, how much of it is permitting and siting and how much of it is just having cost allocation methodology um, that yeah. we can that, that allows for projects that are ready to move forward? Yeah, I don't know. I guess it depends upon how you ask the question of the people who are <laughs> in charge of whether those things get built. Um, I I do think there is some some room to reconsider how we do transmission cost allocation. And it might be a good a good activity for us to go through anyway, because I think at some point in this region, we're gonna have to have that conversation on a larger scale, right? If we do decide at some point we wanna move to some sort of coordinated transmission organization, we're gonna need to have some practice around talking about transmission cost allocation. And that's not been on the table. We've been focusing on you know, governance a lot. And we've yeah. been focusing on resource adequacy, but we haven't touched that other piece. It's like the the item that shall not be named. Um, so, you know, one of the things I was trying to, I was, you know, I'm not like a tech, technologically savvy person, but I was talking to some folks at WAC and I said, like, what if you could just like have a blank map, take all the political boundaries off of it, all the balancing areas and everything, and then just do make it a heat map. Like here's where we know generation is going to be built and here's where we know congestion is. Okay. You look at it, you see the results and then you lay the, the political boundaries back on top of it. And you notice that there's some overlap. There's like two public power entities over here, an IOU and maybe BPA that are sort of all implicated by this investment that needs to be made. Can we come up with a cost allocation methodology across those different entities that makes sense? We, it just nothing like that exists in our process today because the IOUs have to get rate recovery from the regulators, and then the BPA relationship with the public power when they when they invest in a network resource is to spread those costs over all the transmission customers. So you get a lot of like, well, you built that transmission line or you upgraded that line, but we don't benefit from it. And one of the things that was in this SCEC. Um, document was this conversation around uh, the beneficiary pays. And so is there a way to look at who's benefiting from some of the new 
investments in infrastructure and then allocate the cost that way? I don't know. I'll I'll add to that. Is there, can we consider, I might not be popular with this, but just the grid as a public good and it doesn't matter who benefits? Like if, if my neighbor isn't able to, to, you know, there, there's something critical over, you know, some critical uh, infrastructure, not related to the grid, I don't know, a hospital or something in my neighbor's um, region, and they're not reliably um, um, served, it does impact me in another way. Yeah. Or if we're moving to an electric future, and our, our trucks need to be electrified, so maybe in my little service area, I won't have as huge, you know, truck uh, charging station. And so maybe I don't need that extra electricity, but I sure need all the goods that come off of that truck. Like, can, can we get past who benefits and recognize that it's it's a public good? Um, that's what I would, would love to see. Yeah. I want to be your neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> There's I'm a house looking out for there. Yeah, uh, we I've, I've talked with I think it was um, Jacob Mays talking about transmission as like the the structure upon which the electric market operates. And in some ways that backs up your point, Almaz, that it's it's like the basic infrastructure you need to make the market work, um, which would establish it as like basic, uh, you know, public good infrastructure which I, um, I think is a compelling argument. Uh, the, the other thing you got me thinking about, Nicole, on transmission was th- when you were talking about your exercise with WEC, it made me think of conversation we had with Elliot Mainzer, where he talked about his management of the queue was through their transmission expansion plan, um, where they were thinking about the way they're, um, they're planning their transmission grid was sending a signal to the queue about where to build tra- build these projects um, that would be for the best benefit of their uh, independent system operator. It, it, do, do you like that kind of framework for thinking about managing the queue, which is the queues, uh, we've all seen stories in a lot of yeah. the queues. Yeah, it's, it's I do, but we've got a lot of queues. <laughs> we do have a lot of queues. <laughs> Too many queues. <laughs> Too Which is another argument cues. for like an RTL, yeah. right? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, too many queues managed differently. And too many queues where we haven't really been thinking more very strategically about how to manage. I mean, I think, I'm hopeful, I think BPA will be moving to the first ready, first serve model soon which will help move things. People, you know, projects that are ready to go to put down those deposits, um, that might be helpful. Pacific Core did, a re, a, they reformed their queue not too long ago and, and moved into that and it, it did help. I, the problem with us is that when that happens, some of our members are winners and some of our members are losers. <laughs> but we are steadfast on this concept of whatever is the best overall for the industry and to move things forward is what you should do. And so, yeah, I, I do like that idea. It can't be done with multiple balancing areas and multiple queues. Yeah. Nope. Agreed. Anything else you want to add, Karen? Are we ready for the next one? No, I'm ready to go. Okay. Take it away, Elmaz. All right. The Southwest Power Pool released its Markets Plus detailed proposal on November 30th, 2022. The proposal is the most recent product of the Markets Plus initiative that incorporates public comment on the draft service offering. Pulling language from the document, the proposal is, quote, 
a bundle of proposed services that would centralize day ahead and real-time unit commitment and dispatch, provide hurdle-free hurdle-free transmission service across its footprint, and pave the way for the reliable integration of a rapidly growing fleet of renewable energy generation, end quote. SPP's plan includes a two-phase development process for the Western market, beginning with potential participants and stakeholders financially committing to design the market protocols, tariff, and governing documents. The second phase would launch on approval of those documents by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. SPP expects it will take about 21 months to prepare the FERC application. The Southwest Power Poll has given potential participants until April 1st, 2023 to sign contracts to commit to the first implementation phase. We found coverage of the proposal in Utility Dive by Robert, Robert Walton and Clearing Up by Dan Catchpole. There will be links to both articles uh, and the proposal in the show notes. So, Nicole, um, obviously, we we talk a lot about market development um, uh, on this podcast, and uh, obviously, in, in most conversations these days. So, my question to you: So, what do you find most interesting about this process? So, I have been pretty narrowly focused on governance in both this process as well as. Um, uh, the Western Resource Adequacy Program and the Day Ahead Market in California. Um, I have a, um, some other staff people have been following more on the technical pieces of transmission and and, and other things like that. Um, I'll I'll say that you know at at first this has been this has been ongoing conversations around governance for a while, and I I feel like the Western Resource Adequacy Program process was. A, a real success. I mean, we, at, at the beginning, it was like, okay, how is this going to play out? And um, what are the goals? And what's the outcome going to look like? And we were, we were worried, we were worried that it was just going to be kind of a traditional utility focus that didn't consider uh, the bigger picture of issues that the region's trying to, to get at. But we were really pleased with the outcome. And then we heard that SPP wanted to take that governance proposal and sort of copy and paste into this day ahead market um, concept. Well, it didn't quite work out that way. And over time, it has improved. Um, We've been pushing for independent board that's kind of separate from the SPP board and, and a nominating committee that's representative of all the sectors that participate or that are affected by the market. and work groups and structures and full sector representation. And I think those pieces are starting to come together and they're there. Um, You know, I I ultimately am kind of wondering still what it is that we're trying to create here. Because I know that there's a big desire for um, incremental steps towards market development. And this is narrowly focused on um, the Markets Plus offering. But that I hear SPP talking about their next step would be to establish like a full RTO. Um, so are, are we creating governance that's going to be that's going to be resilient and it's going to last beyond SPP Markets Plus, or do we have to have this conversation again once we once we get comfortable with the Markets Plus construct and want to move on to the RTO? So it's the same. It's similar. 
uh, in CAISO, in EDAM, it's like, what, what, where are we evolving to? And what governance structure are we evolving to? It sounds like both probably have the same sort of question on the next step. Uh, are we uh, are we evolving to taking on SPP's uh, governance structure? Are we evolving to taking on California's governance structure if we go to EDAM? Um, do, do you, so my, my, uh, opinion is we have agency and where these paths go, uh, that if we develop markets plus governance structure, we will have agency around how that evolves and whether we come up with, uh, a Western RTO with that sort of governance structure, um, or if we evolve to something like RTO West, do you, do you, where do you think we should be going? Nicole, do you, do you want to use, uh, a markets plus governance structure or something a governance structure like that do you think that's the right do you think that's right you think you like that structure um yeah i mean i i don't want to get into all the little nitty-gritty details of because i do have some comments <laughs> um that i'll save for <laughs> from the comment my formal comments that i apply i i feel like we probably need to start asking the question like what is the overall value proposition and what are the problems that we're trying to solve by applying this governance structure to X, Y, and Z. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't want the decision on which day ahead market and ultimately which RTO people join to be based on, well, I just feel better about being a part of this group. I actually want it to be like born by real analysis of the value proposition. And I want to know, what is best for the the Northwest region as a whole? I have this sort of this, you know, fear that we go down separate paths and that we have a split somewhere in the Northwest where we have a handful of maybe IOUs that might decide to join California's day ahead market here shortly. And then we have development of SPP Markets Plus that goes in a different direction and we still have this massive seam. The seam might have just moved a little bit north to Oregon, where it used to be in California. And so, you know, ultimately, I'd like to see them all come together. And I think if you peeled back the layers of all the different pieces of governance, the pieces are there, the pieces of the puzzle are there to bring them all together to create one entity. It, there's just a few things that we need to get over. And one is we need to get over this fear of California being the boogeyman. There is a real fear in the Northwest, that we can't trust California, that there are provisions in the state of California which which require them to do things in benefit to their customers over any other market transaction. And, and that those are just unfounded fears. They're not, they're not true. Um, the constructs that resulted in the wheel through are FERC requirements to protect native load. That requirement could exist in SPP's market plus just as easily as it could exist in Kaiso day ahead market. And so I think, you know, when we're thinking about what we want, I think I just want us to pull back the, you know, take a step back and look at the big picture and, and come up with an idea that's going to work. So we're not dealing with political boundaries that are unnecessary and based on things that aren't, you know, ultimately going to bring benefit to the region. So I'm, I'm trying to understand that that a little bit more. Um, first of all, I I, uh, I actually appreciate that. I've never heard anybody speak um, as unfearfully of California uh, and the governance <laughs> issues as you have right now. So um, that's interesting. 
but were you saying uh, uh, when you were talking about uh, having us all come together as one? Were you meaning? Were, did you mean like a um, a Northwest RTO, or did you mean like an entire West SPP California, the Northwest, all being one one market? The state-led study on grid flexibility identified that the best, on a, from an economic standpoint, the best option would be one single market. It evaluated the market, the, the entire West, you know, separate from California, and that, I think, is least optimal. So, I mean, um, from there's lots of reasons why I think states like Oregon and Washington would fare well from by being connected to California. And it, it has to do with the political, honestly, it has to do with some political things, but just the mechanisms of trading in a in markets where we have carbon requirements. Um, if that is not going to be something that is of high importance in SPP's market plus, that, that may pose some challenges to states like Oregon and Washington. So, and we, we haven't seen the details of how that proposal is going to pan out. I know that there are a lot of challenges right now between trading between, like, say, Washington under CETA's provisions and California under their greenhouse gas accounting requirements. There's nothing that indicates to me yet that we won't have equal challenges in, a, in an SPP markets class construct. I, I guess one of, what I'm trying to get at is, EDAM has or EIM has been up and running. And so we have something to point at and something to like say, look, this is how it didn't work. <laughs> if SPP's Markets Plus or SPP's in energy imbalance market had been operating for this many years, we might have some of the same questions and conversations about how it might be incompatible with, with what we're trying to do. So let's figure out what those things are and see if we can create something that works across the entire West. Yeah, I think uh, taking some lessons learned from EIM is is a, is a good way to approach regardless of what market you end up developing is we have some experience who can pass those lessons along. I will say uh, uh, for the from the study of Western states around market development, certainly uh, it isn't that two markets is the least beneficial. It's just less beneficial than yeah. one, right? Less. The least beneficial yeah. is maintaining a series of how many balancing authorities uh, across the West yeah. and any... Uh, any step beyond that's probably good, better than the status quo. Um, and one of the, the I've heard this before, like a Western RTO being um, maybe a, a, the best option or a better option than trying to develop two in the West. I, I keep coming back to the Eastern Interconnect has a bunch of RTOs and ISOs, right? SPP, MISO, New York, like the Northeast has more uh, ISOs and RTOs than the WEC does. Um, it, it, to me, it's not incredibly intuitive as to why you couldn't be successful with multiple RTOs uh, in the West and and that have seems agreements and that there may be benefit benefits to having uh, a couple regional transmission organizations or independent system operators negotiating those seams as peers. Um, it, it seems like, I don't know if it's the mo the best outcome, but it's at least better than status quo. And maybe it's yeah. more feasible to get there as more than, maybe, maybe it's an incremental step to go to two before one. Any thoughts on that, Nicole? Yeah. Well, I think you're right. I mean, I think there's obviously ways that we can divvy up the region and and have, you know, responsible negotiations around seams and come up with a good outcome. 
However, you know, one of the things that I don't know that they have in those other RTOs, and it's just just my lack of knowledge of that, is an existing high-voltage DC intertie between two of the states that is functional. And, you know, it just doesn't make sense for us to exclude that interconnection and the existing transfer that happens between California and the Northwest um, from consideration going forward. It just doesn't, it, it just feels like we have this opportunity. We already have this market up and running and we already have the transfer capability. Let's see how we can do it better instead of creating something new where we have to build new transmission. I mean, I know there's talk about BPA being interested in building a, a an inner tie, you know, to the desert Southwest. Well, that's going to take like 10, 20 years. We have an inner tie. We have something that works. Let's just pull apart the contract, the contract structure and try and make it better. That's a good pitch. It's a good pitch. You haven't sold me yet, but it's a good pitch. On the governance piece in California, there's going to be attempts at taking the C out of the ISO. That's what we, we call it, right? But I don't know if that's going to be enough. I think that the mistrust of California is deep-seated in this region. And that even if we solved the big G problem that people keep talking about, there's still going to be pushback. And so I, I want to start having the conversation about what are those other things that, that we can start working on. My question sort of goes along with that is what is your thought on timeline? Like whether we go, whether we find one that we all can agree on or whether we, like Paul said, we have two and then we go to one. What do you think? Well, I mean, if you look at the timing of these processes. So I, I mean, EDAM's pretty, pretty ready to go. You'll see commitments probably soon from a couple IOUs. Um, it's going to be a year and a half before there's a, FERC, you know, a fully completed FERC process for SPP Markets Plus. And that, I think that's also, I mean, it's ta- it took Western Resource Adequacy Program a little longer than they anticipated. And then there was a protest. So I think a year and a half is, is being considered on the time frame. So we're going to have this up and running day ahead market. And then there's going to be a year and a half of waiting when there's all this value that can be realized. That doesn't make sense to me. So that that's one thing that I'm I'm thinking like here it is ready to go plug and play let's give it a shot let's see what we can make of this. I uh, Ross Manifold is one of my favorite people and he has this thing where he talks about how how public power not only is like like robust analytics but also we just feel things deeply and I think ignoring those like feelings uh, we we should ignore those at our detriment right it's a, I think there is some value in understanding and understanding you you spoke to this Nicole like there is some like there's some emotions there. Um, and we need to unpack those emotions probably. And maybe we all need a therapist to talk through them, oh, yeah. um, but we won't be able to like acknowledging that sort of cultural discrepancy. Don't, don't ignore it. Uh, ignore it at your peril in some ways in developing markets. And I will be quite frank, Elliot Mainzer has done a great job of acknowledging those feelings in his comments. He is uh, continues to come to the Northwest and be open and honest and make sure that we understand what California is doing and being open and listening. Uh, so I think he's He's coming back uh, as a therapist in some instances, um, and uh, that's healthy. But also, um, yeah, we got to keep keep working through those emotions. 
right? Yeah. Moms, we got to keep working through some emotions. Always, <laughs> always right. working through emotions. <laughs> no, public power in the Northwest has a big like FOMO for anything. They're just, oh, true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I think we can, we really covered that one pretty well. Are we ready to, <laughs> yeah, ready to make it to the next one? Yeah, that was good. Okay. We're taking a quick break. And when we come back, we'll close out the episode with a quick rundown of news stories we didn't get to in our TLDR segment we call Short to Ground. Public Power Underground is brought to you by NWPPA. The Northwest Public Power Association believes in the power of training and education. Every year, more than 6,500 public power employees learn and network at our classes, webinars, workshops, and conferences. NWPPA offers more than 200 event, 250 events, wowzer, to choose from in areas such as leadership, engineering, operations, accounting, and finance, communications, and many more. Sometimes this very podcast, Public Power Underground, is broadcast live from one of our events. We call that being more powerful together. What will you learn this year? Find an event that's right for you at nwppa.org forward slash catalog. That's nwppa.org forward slash catalog. This is Short to Ground, a segment where we blow a fuse covering the news. I'm Paul Dockery. And I'm Nicole Hughes. And we're shorting shorting to ground. ground. Thanks, Paul. That was awesome. Uh, so to start, the Bonneville Power Administration proposes building a new transmission line south of Tri-Cities area in Washington state, which is needed to address near-term operations and maintenance issues, as well as providing operation flexibility in the rapidly growing Tri-Cities area. According to BPA's 2021 transmission plan, the agency estimates that 115 kV project will cost about $100 million and could be energized in 2025. And this article was covered uh, by Steve Ernst in Clearing Up. Kicking Let's it get off it with the transmission Let's story. Let's do it. That's so much good. So good. <laughs> Higher steel prices and interest rates are driving up the projected cost of energy from Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems Plan New Scale 462 megawatt small modular reactor project. LeVar Webb, spokesperson for UAMPS, told Clearing Up that an engineering cost estimate will be finished early in 2023, but current projections put the cost of energy from the SMR at $100 per megawatt hour. UAMP says it still expects to submit the project's combined operating license application to the NRC in early 2024 and construction to begin in 2026. The first of the four modular modules are still anticipated to be in operation in 2029, with the remaining three entering service in 2030. For more, see coverage by Steve Ernst in Clearing Up. And the natural gas system supplies across Southern California should be in good shape for winter 2022-23, barring a multi-day weather event, according to California regulators and Southern California Gas Company analyses. The winter assessment, which has been issued annually since the Aliso Canyon leak, was presented at November 30 Joint Agency Workshop and is part of the state's natural gas decarbonization proceedings. You can learn more from Linda Daly-Paulson's coverage in California energy markets. The California Public Utility Commission at its December 1st meeting voted to approve allowing Pacific Gas and Electric to exit step one of the commission's enhanced oversight and enforcement process. Rachel Peterson, executive director of the CPUC, said that PG&E had met all its obligations under the enhanced oversight, which was imposed on the utility in April 2021. For more, including additional context of the whys and what fors, read Ann Ernst's coverage in California energy markets. 
And Clark Public Utilities has acquired the 50 average megawatt annual output from the Box Canyon Hydroelectric Project in Northeast Washington through a long-term power purchase agreement with Ponderai Public Utility District. The deal starts January 1st, 26, and runs through December 2041. For more coverage, for more fine coverage from Steve Ernst and Clearing Up. Eight federal dams in the Willamette Valley system with hydroelectric generation capability are currently only marginally economically viable, and due to uh, court-ordered mitigations, near-term operations will decrease power generation by 52 average megawatts from the current 171 average megawatts, resulting in power generation that is no longer economically viable, according to a draft energy environmental impact statement released November 25th. Public power advocates say the Willamette Valley system already produces some of the costliest power in BPA's portfolio. In 2020, the Public Power Council supported the deauthorization of power as a purpose at some of the dams. For more, check out Casey Mahaffey's coverage and clearing up. NewScale issued a press release Thursday, December 1st, announcing a research, a research collaboration agreement with Shell Global Solutions and other researchers regarding a concept for hydrogen production using electricity and process heat from NewScale's Voyager, that's the acronym, V-O-Y-G-R, small modular reactor. As part of the project, local economic factors from the Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems carbon-free power project will also be assessed. Coverage of this concept can be found by Steven Singer in Utility Dive. Spot market power in the Northwest for delivery today, December 5th, is at $180 per megawatt hour with Northwest gas at $16.35 per MMBTU, translating to a spark spread of $63.65 and a heat rate of 11,000. Spot power in the Southwest is $138.75, Southern California at $146.81, and Northern California at $157.07. January gas at Henry Hub is at $6.38 per MMBTU. And natural gas prices rose significantly last week. Prices traded for the Northwest at Sumas rose $4.61 from $11.85 per MMBTU on November 23rd to $16.46 MMBTU on November 30th. Prices at the Malin Hub on the Oregon-California border, the main northern delivery point into the PG&E service territory, rose $5.10 from $12 MMBTU to $17.10 MMBTU over the same week its highest daily price since February 2019. Several factors contributed to the rapid price increases this report week, including colder temperatures in Western Canada that led to a 0.2 billion cubic feet per day decrease in exports to the Western region this report week, according to data from PrintLogic. Just wow. Just wow. That's wow. This week in NOAA climate forecast, the 6 to 10 day outlook has below normal temperatures and above normal precipitation across the West. Lastly, checking Northwest water supply forecasts, October through September flows at the Dalles for water year 23 are currently forecasted to be 80% of normal, and April to September is at 85%. Day ending elevation at Grand Coulee for November 28th was 1,280 feet. That's it for our TLDR segment. Thanks to Public Power Underground's production partners at News Data for letting us use their leads. If you want to know more, you can find the complete stories in California energy markets and clearing up. You ready to close it out, Nicole? Yeah, let's do it. That's, That's short, short to ground. To ground. You okay, know. we'll start. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, it's wait. good every week. 
Go, go. Amaz, take it away. Any stories in there you wanted to dive a little bit deeper into you thought were interesting? Uh, Remind me again, I was looking at that uh, that story where uh, inflation's got the SMR going up to $100. Was it 80? I seem to remember it started off at around $80 a megawatt hour, and now it's up to 100 I think it's in the it was in the 50s it was in the 50s and the term in the, in the industry we call it a five handle oh god yeah. okay. what is the is it the components or is it supply chain what is it it's- so you can learn more in utility dive and clearing up <laughs> okay. I, I actually interpret it a lot as related to interest costs uh especially interest during construction is huge for uh, nuclear projects. I, I should probably get somebody on to talk more about it because this is all like, don't rely on this for your interpretation of what's going on. But, you know, there's a lot of capital, high capital project interest rates have gone up significantly and interest during construction can be a big weight on your levelized cost of power. Yeah. So, it, I mean, that, go ahead, Nicole. is this project really going to start construction in 2026? What, You're asking the, me? I have no idea, Nicole. I got no idea. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. It feels like they probably I mean, we, want to have some so. sort of a power purchase agreement ready to go. And who's going to pay a hundred dollars a megawatt hour right now? Well, I mean, part of the question is like, what's 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 power with similar attributes going to cost? Yeah. Right. So it is. Um, you know, it's 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 nuclear power. Um, it'll, this actually incorporated all of the benefits from uncle Bill and Aunt Ira into the hundred dollars yeah. per megawatt hour. Um, so it's, you know, a clean energy resource that provides power. Um, you know, so I, I was, I was supposed to buy, well, we had our, I think it was 2020 when we had that first heat wave or maybe it was 21. I can't remember the, the, the years are blurred. And I was like, that's it. I'm getting a heat pump, so I don't have air air conditioning in my house. And I'll, but I've always wanted to anyway. My gas furnace is on its last leg, and I was like, "That's it. I'm getting me a heat pump." And the the cost, I'm so I could, cheapness will be my demise, Paul. I'm going to tell you that. But I looked at it and I was like, "Yeah, I could probably squeeze another year or two out of my furnace." And when it's really dead, then I'll go ahead and and like big mistake. I think even with the incentives that come out of Ira. I probably would have been better off just buying it a couple of years ago. Like it's yeah. totally eaten into all of the benefits of the incentives. $16 of MMBTU at Sumas. Yep. Holy cow. Ouch. Karen, there any stories in there that you wanted to get into? Oh yeah. That, I referenced it in my last question, but the uh, timelines on transmission lines, like that one South of uh, the Tri-Cities, I just... I always think they're uh, admirable, I guess. <laughs> it's just, I mean, Nicole already talked about all the things you have to, that like the loops that you got to jump through or the hoops, you got to, everything. It's just, uh, I hope, but I am a realist, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just want to- We build transmission all the time. Go ahead, Nicole. But BPA has some critical upgrades that need to be done that they're saying they can't get done until 2030. How are they going to build a brand new transmission line? Yeah, it just seems like there's a lot of other stuff so oh come, do I, yeah, I mean we do we build transmissions line all the time 115 <laughs> kv project i don't know this seems really reasonable yeah. like yeah. Wh- how many miles is this i don't even think it's that long like <laughs> yeah we yeah transmission does be. get it's built all the time million. no i know it does get built all the time transmission just, gets built all the time i and i think i suspect this is one of those shovel ready projects that they'll be able to get through and okay. get done i'm, I, I'm maybe I, See, he's I believe got the, in Bonneville. I believe go. it's, it's, in Bonneville power. 
I worked at Bonneville in 2005 and there's transmission lines I worked on that still haven't been built. <laughs> well, it's true of any, it's true of any development project. I worked at projects at NextEra that still haven't been built. That's, yeah, really a bad that's project. true. Yeah. And it's, that's not a, that's not like, that's just a, a process and a, and how, what it takes. It's not like a specific problem with BPA. It's hard to build transmission. No, 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 no. It's, it's just, yeah. uh, it's yeah. always interesting okay. to see. It is. And Nicole, anything else you want to talk about in there? No. Um, I mean, those gas prices are kind of crazy. I don't, you know, I don't, people keep asking me like, what's it going to be like this winter? What's going to be like? And then, and then there's this new big deal that's being signed out of Russia. And I just still, you know, my dad is still like blaming me for the price of gas increasing. <laughs> he thinks that somehow I have the ability to like manipulate the a You world turned commodity. it up, didn't you, Nicole? You did. <laughs> <Yeah>. It was you. <laughs> But there's a lot of people that are really interested in what it's going to look like this winter. Yeah, I it's mean, it's going to be these, expensive. These prices are already expensive. The Northeast is going to get I, the Northeast prices currently aren't as uh, bad as the West. The West is actually worse than the Northeast right now. That's crazy. Um, yeah. And by worst, I mean higher prices. Um, and yeah, it's it's I don't know. This, this winter is going to be hard for some people, for sure. Yeah. I almost feel like if I just stopped advocating for clean energy, maybe all of a sudden the gas prices would go down and then my dad would be happy to talk to me again. <laughs> uh, I think that's all we're covering this week. I really appreciated you coming on, Nicole. Well done. Good cold open. I hope you feel valued and appreciated. I do. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been, um, this is a, a life list for me being on the Public Power Underground. I am a huge fan. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Check it off the list. You accomplished it. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> Karen, do you feel valued and appreciated? It's good to be back. Good to have I you I do. It is great to be back. I do so much. Thank you, Paul. Good. Almaz, I appreciate you. I value you. Well done. I feel appreciated well about you. Thank you. Good. Public Power Underground is the power industry's premier infotainment program that covers electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. You can sign up for an unintrusive newsletter with links to ways to consume to consume this fascinating content at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. I think I missed a word in there, but just go listen to the other episodes. You'll get it basically the same every time. Thanks to Public Power Council and our PPC podcast ambassador, Karen Heim. PPC represents the Pacific Northwest consumer-owned utilities on important issues in the region and in Washington, D.C. for the purpose of preserving and enhancing the benefits of the Federal Columbia River Power System, FCRPS, for consumer-owned utilities. You can find Karen everywhere you find PPC. You don't have to be subscribed to Newsdata's weekly podcast, weekly newsletter to get this podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. That's all for this week. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch. Public Power Underground is a production of Klatskin IPUD and News Data. The views expressed are our own and not the official views of Klatskin IPUD and News Data or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. It's written by Paul Dockery, Dan Catchpole, and Abigail Sawyer, and it's edited and published by the Stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources, led by associate producer Sarah Wooden. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiasts, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bledsoe. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on. We're likely recruiting you to come and join on. Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on.